one, it's getting to know your city on an intimate level. Um, like I have gotten to know so many awesome people that walk through our, our taproom doors and become regulars and friends, um, like true friends of, of us and, and our brewery staff. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash half hour intern. In today's episode, I speak with Drew Poole, who is co-owner of Ren House Brewery in Phoenix, Arizona. If you guys are ever going through Phoenix or if you happen to live in Phoenix, Arizona, I highly recommend you go to Ren House. It, it, Drew toured me around the other day and it is absolutely awesome. They restored this historic old building um, and then the parts behind where they're brewing the beer so cool and everything and their beers are absolutely fantastic they've won a lot of awards for them in the two years that they've been open and are like really kind of rising stars in the microbrew scene in the southwest so um really an honor to have him on the show something kind of cool about having drew on the show is that drew does not have any background in brewing beer he said he tried home brewing one time and it didn't really go very well or anything like that but that he decided then that he he still wanted wanted to open a brewery, but that he would do the marketing and the business aspect of it and stuff like that, because that is that is what his background is in. So he partnered with and found a good brewer to be able to make the beers and then decided to stick with something that he was already very good at. So if you have ever had a dream of opening up a brewery or a coffee shop or for that matter, a lot of businesses, there's so much good advice that Drew gives in this and so many things that could carry over into owning any other brick and mortar store. I feel like this is a really, really, really good episode to listen to. I myself would love to have something like a brewery own day. So I think you can kind of tell that in the the way that this interview, I feel like feels a little bit different from other interviews. It's just super informative. Like we'll talk about licensing and what's legal and what's not legal and how much the equipment costs and how much of a loan you need to get. And like, you know, very specific things that like at the end of this episode, you would probably think to yourself, damn, I think I actually pretty much know everything I need to know to open a brewery right now. So um, anyways, if you want to open a brewery, definitely check this out. If you don't want to open a brewery, you'll probably like it anyways. If you just like beer without further ado, here is micro brewery owner. Drew, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to know a little bit about your backstory of like the desire to start a brewery and what you did with this desire and stuff like that. Because I think pretty much everyone listening and maybe they've already thought this is like, Blake, why do you why do you even ask a question like that? Like, who doesn't want to start a brewery? So it is like one of those things that kind of everyone in the back of their head would want to do. Um, but tell us like your reasons for it and the going from this just being like a cool idea to this might be something that we actually do. Yeah, totally. I'm so I'm probably similar to most people in that I really like to drink good beer. Um, so I was you know into the craft industry and uh, at the time probably six or seven years ago when this was an idea, um, you know, I had traveled a lot and tried a lot of beers and um, probably am at a similar place as a lot of people where, you know, the industry's cool. It looks like it's, you know, growing super fast. So really wanted to get into it. I um, actually was at a crossroads uh, in my life where 
I graduated undergrad and had, um, you know, was looking for uh, a career in the in the um, job market, but it was kind of the right after the recession, so there wasn't a lot of good options. Um, so I was talking to my wife about, you know, kind of what was the next step and where uh, we should kind of take our lives. And I had applied to business school, and at the same time, I had applied to uh, brewing school at UC Davis. Um, they have a pretty internationally renowned brewing school there. So I was thinking about going kind of into the brewing profession or basically going the complete opposite and going into a business profession. Um, and I, I, we made an agreement that, you know, if I got into business school, I would go to business school. I had already got the acceptance letter for UC Davis. Um, long story short, I got into business school. Um, I went to Thunderbird, which is a wait, 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 wait. You got into beer school and you went to business school instead? Yeah. So it was, uh, I don't know why I, I chose to do that. Um, I think I still had the international kind of travel bug. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I jumped at the opportunity to go to business school and kind of went the long way around to come back and actually start a brewery. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great, man. So did you have a lot of prior beer knowledge when you were, I mean, obviously you know what you liked and stuff like that, but I mean, you were considering going to beer school. So did you still um, like, were you home brewing? Were you trying to figure out a lot of stuff on your own? Or is this something that your partners kind of brought to the table when you decided to start a brewery? Yeah. So I, I did try my hand at, at home brewing and it was, um, a disaster. <laughs> I don't think I have the, the patience, um, or just, I guess the uh, diligence needed to, um, be super methodical and, and, uh, you know, actually brew good, good beer. So I, I'd done a homebrew batch and basically destroyed our kitchen. Uh, and that kind of, you know, lent to the idea that maybe I shouldn't actually move into the, the brewing field and maybe I should look at it more from a, a business perspective. But to your other question, yeah, we, uh, you know, through the process of, of building the business plan and everything, we, we knew that we wanted to find a really great brewer. Um, so we kind of looked far and wide. Um, there's some kind of brewing resources you can go on and, and try to find a, an expert brewer that's looking for a change. Um, and we, we did, we, we found Preston who ended up being, um, our head brewer. That's so great, man. And he was living in the same area and like wanted all the same things as you guys. No. So, so he actually grew up with, with my wife in Phoenix. They went to, I think like elementary school together and he was brewing up at big sky. And when we were in the process of looking for a brewer, um, my wife mentioned, Hey, I, I know a guy that is actually brewing up in Montana right now. Maybe we should ask him if he knows anybody. And he actually said that he was in fact looking for a change and kind of jumped at the opportunity to open it up with us. Yeah. must've been a really cool thing. I imagine a big sky since that's a little bigger, like he probably wasn't getting to just like create everything himself or with the team. Like he probably just had to work more on the, like the, the brewing. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when you're working for such a large scale brewery, like, like big sky, he was basically, you know, just doing the recipes that were already kind of given to him. And then, you know, everybody jokes about the brewing industry that they're glorified janitors. Uh, they spend most of their time cleaning and maintaining equipment and that sort of thing. And very little of it is actually the, the cool creative side where you're thinking about new recipes and uh, flavor profiles and, and actually brewing. The, the actual brewing process is only a couple hours and then cleaning is, you know, days and days worth of stuff. 
Wait, wait, wait. The actual brewing process is only going to be a couple hours? Or you mean the, the work that goes in and then it's going to sit there for quite a bit longer? Well, no, like an a- average brew day, um, you know, they'll go, what they do now is they'll uh, mill the grain kind of the night before. So get all the grain ready into the grain hopper or the grain silo. And then they'll mash in, which, you know, takes about an hour. And then they'll, they'll boil, um, which, you know, depending on the brew is anywhere from an hour to, to three hours. And, and that's kind of it. That's the brewing process where, you know, everybody thinks, uh, you know, when you're homebrewing or whatever, when you're adding the hops and you're, um, you know, getting all those cool brewery smells and everything like that, that's uh, a very short piece of it. And then after that, it's all on the cold side. So it's, um, or the cellar side where it goes to a fermenter and it sits in a fermenter for like three weeks. Um, then you got to kind of monitor and make sure it's, it's healthy. It's doing its thing. It's bubbling away, that sort of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, man. I see the glorified janitor thing. Then <laughs> it's like not a lot of, not a lot of actual brewing that needs to be done. Yeah. And I've actually had to help out with cleaning out some of the stuff. If you get like a stuck mash, which means, uh, the grain sort of bed collapses in the, the mash tun. And basically it, it, <laughs> it's a messy process. So all the liquid is still in there, it's trapped in there. So you try to get as much of it out as possible, but, uh, you get to a point where you have to clean it out. And it's, uh, it's basically like a huge thousand pound batch of oatmeal that gets over everything. <laughs> and it's really hot. So. That sounds awful. Yeah. Are you just like scooping it out with a giant spoon? A giant shovel and trash cans and anything you can get your hands on. Yeah, for sure. All right, man. So let's take quite a big step back and go back in time to before you had really launched the brewery. And the, so the brewery it was it is your your first business that you started. Um, you also have a day job. You still work your day job. Um, mm-hmm. How much time went between you? thinking like, oh, it'd be good to start a brewery to actually being able to open it. And what are some of like the key things that happened on that timeline that led you to be able to open the brewery? Yeah, so I've been, um, my day job, I, I work at Intel. So I've, I've been at Intel for seven years now, but uh, I met my business partner here. Um, we met at like a charity bike build, which I normally don't do charity stuff. Um so it was it was a funny kind of coincidence that we met each other there, um, and basically immediately after that bike build, um, we exchanged numbers, and um, I think like first conversation was, hey, like let's start a business together. It was just sort of this weird um, thing where you you meet somebody and you think that you could work together really well. Yeah. Um, so basically, we spent all of our coffee breaks at work talking about you know new business ideas. And it was everything from, you know, let's start like a a protein bar company to let's, you know, invent some kind of uh, hiking equipment all the way, you know, just all these different types of, um, I guess, companies to to get started since my business partner has a PhD in um, like material science and and chemical engineering. So he's kind of got that uh, scientific mindset. So we were thinking about different products to make and I'm like, you know, I've always had this idea to start a brewery. You know, the industry is kind of taking off. Maybe we should play around with that idea. We did a little bit. We shelved it. I moved up to Portland for work um, for Intel, and uh, we lived downtown. I got to know a lot of brewers and brewery owners um, in Portland, which, as everybody knows, it's, it's kind of like a beer mecca up there. 
And they actually, you know, opened their doors and said, you know, hey, if you're interested in, in starting a brewery, like, you know, these are all the hard things that we went through, everything we learned. They even shared, like, you know, some of their, their numbers and their financials about, you know, what it actually takes to, to break even, what are some of the costs involved. And I remember, you know, picking up the phone and calling Bill when I was in Portland and said, hey, I'm going to do this. Um, are you in? And he said, yeah, let's do it. So the next day we, we started a LLC, started working on the paperwork um, to file to actually become a business in, in Phoenix, and then um, started working on the business plan, which the business plan process took about a year since we you know had our day jobs and that sort of thing. Um, our first. What was that whole process day, for the business plan? You know, it was, uh, well, so we, we talked to a couple of banks, uh, looked at the SBA requirements and realized that, you know, to, to get a loan, we had to have a pretty solid business plan. So uh, we looked at everything from, you know, market dynamics in our local market in Phoenix, um, uh, you know, the population, how many people are, um, are in our target market, um, like the young professional kind of market that's um, really helping grow the, the craft beer industry, um, how many brewers are in the market or breweries in Phoenix, so what does the competition look like, um, and then doing forecasting. So that's where Bill kind of stepped in and, and helped out with all the um, forecasting numbers, like, you know, what can we expect to make year one, year two, year three, if um, all these different things happen, right? If we if we go distribution or if we sell in-house um, with the different margins and, and all that stuff, right? So really comprehensive. And, and we t- when we took the business plan um, to a lot of the banks, they were actually pretty impressed that we, we spent a lot of time um, in this in the business plan. And we had, you know, super uh, long forecasted uh, revenues and, and all that stuff. So they were pretty happy about it. So not to jump too much around in this interview, timeline-wise, but uh, now if you could tell us how you you guys are are what like a a year and a half, two years in from opening the brewery? Yeah, we just uh, hit our two-year mark last month. Okay, so how did his first two years of projection end up looking compared to what you guys actually did? Yeah, so I, it was uh, it was kind of all over the place. So I think, as most uh, people know, no matter what business you start, as soon as you know you open the door day one, um, kind of all the plans go out the window. So we we had forecasted in our business plan that we would do a, a very significant share of our business's distribution. So we were thinking like a seventy five twenty five split. Seventy five percent of our beer would be distributed, and twenty five percent would be in house. Um, I think fast forward to today, to today, and it's um, flipped. So, seventy five percent of our business is actually through our tap room. Twenty five percent is distributed, which is great because that means that our margins are way better, um, and we've um, made it to made it to black or made it to um, positive revenue um, in you know a faster time than we thought. I think we were thinking of you know like a three year we would be losing money, but kind of breaking even, keeping um, keeping the business afloat. But uh, we kind of accelerated that through various uh, initiatives we've done, like um, getting to bottling at year one and canning at year two. Those have really helped, um, you know, drive margin and, and help the business. Yeah, for sure. You and I talked about that a little bit yesterday um, when you gave me a tour of the brewery and everything. If you could tell everyone about kind of the margin difference between 
you selling kegs and selling beer to other bars and restaurants versus like you said having your own tap room basically like having your own bar as it were um and how much better off it is for you guys to keep your own beer and just serve it there yeah totally so if you um so our our uh, brew house is 10 barrels so we make about 20 big kegs worth of beer so uh, a big keg that you'll see at at a bar or something that's called a half barrel so uh, we get about 20 of those per batch depending on our yield um and how frequently can you make a batch just so everyone can kind of like try to picture this as they go along yeah so we can you can technically brew 24 hours a day um and that's what kind of big sky does so preston worked the overnight shift so again the actual the hot side or the the actual brewing process takes you know anywhere from like two to four hours depending on on the beer so you can you know once you clean it out and everything you can get another batch going immediately um so we do often do double batches in the same day we'll brew twice but when we get to you know peak levels, you can even do you know three or four batches a day, but you know it depends on how much um, ferment or space you have. And, I was going to say like on, storage on space time. and all that. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's all sorts of uh, different uh, uh, constriction points, but uh, so so we get twenty kegs per batch. Um, each one of those kegs on a wholesale level, like if we were to sell it to a bar. Um, it would range anywhere from, you know, like a, a Budweiser, I think is like $120 um, a keg. And for some of the craft stuff, you get up to, you know, around $200 for that that same um, half keg. And that, you know, there's 125 pints or so in that keg. So, you know, at the low end with Budweiser, they're getting about a dollar a beer um, in that keg when they sell it to a wholesale account. If we were to take that keg, even if we were just a bar and sell it, um, we could sell it for maybe $5 a pint. So, you know, all of a sudden we're making um, $625 from that same keg, you know, as a as a bar. Um, so for us, you know, that, that extra margin is crazy, right? So it would take us, um, you know, if we're only doing distribution, we'd have to sell three or four kegs to get the same amount of money from that one keg, um, you know, in the tap room. So it's, uh, the margins are, are huge. And that's really what's driven a lot of the craft beer industry growth, um, over the past couple of years. Um, and that's why Arizona is so great because, um, the laws vary from state to state and some states, uh, breweries aren't even allowed to have their own tasting room or their own tap room. So it's a lot harder for them. Their only choice is to distribute or to go through a three, tier system or whatever it is um so we're really lucky in that we can we brew our own beer and sell it out of our our tap room so i was gonna and, ask about yeah. that sorry to interrupt but you keep using the term tap room um yeah. do you have a license as a bar or is it one of these things that it's like we're a brewery it's understood that we're allowed to let people have beer here yeah so again it's, it's different state to state but in arizona as a uh, microbrewery you're allowed to um sell your own beer in in a tap room that's great that's so awesome um all right so now let's jump back to the getting um up to the point where you're able to open the brewery and everything so yeah. uh i imagine a big piece of once you are you know get your business plan together and uh you are trying to secure a loan and everything is trying to find a space that you could actually do this so 
I really, really like the space that yours is that your brewery is in, and we we talked about this yesterday. I feel like it's like a, and I'm sure you guys have obviously had the same feeling, and that's why you you put it there. Is is going to, is cur- already sort of is and is going to be a more and more like kind of up and coming area and has the, that exact demographic that you're looking for living around you and everything. Um, mm-hmm. However, at the time, I'm sure that you guys signed the lease there. It's it you know it's not like there's like a lot of foot traffic there or anything for that I mean, Phoenix right. isn't really a foot traffic type of city so you know that's yeah. I guess kind of irrelevant but something that people will say like whenever you are looking to buy a house or or I imagine with the business and, and things like that yeah. is like buy the worst house in a nice neighborhood you know and then you can fix up the yeah. house as time goes along and like with the business it would be like well you can buy like a shitty storefront in a in a in a area that has a ton of traffic you know like a ton of foot traffic whether that be downtown or like some awesome Mm -hmm. strip mall or i I don't know what it would be you know um Mm -hmm. so how did you end up where you are because there isn't really a ton of traffic um but it's a good area like what what sorts of pros and con lists were you making in your head when you you were deciding where exactly to to get a space yeah i mean for a brewery, it's really challenging because we're limited by uh, zoning laws. And then also at the time, you know, when we when we were looking for a location three or four years ago, um, there were still some old antiquity, well, just say old, <laughs> old rules on the books that um, a brewery or any sort of bar or anywhere that's serving alcohol can't be within, I think it was like 300 feet of a, or 300 yards of a, a church or a school or a playground, so or a park. So you you get these, you find like the perfect location and the perfect area that's cheap and it checks all the boxes. And then, you know, you're looking around and you're like, oh shit, there's a church. Like <laughs> I can see a church like a few hundred feet from us, and we wouldn't be able to move into that space because of that church. Wow. Um, anymore, so Phoenix or the state got rid of that law um, that you can't be too close to a church or school or whatever, because it was limiting a lot of growth. Um, so that's not an issue anymore, but at the time it still limited us. Um, and then the second thing was zoning. So we were really limited in our search um, to industrial areas. So um, like Tempe or, or Sky Harbor, like the airport or super far west side or super far east side or Grand Avenue or something where we had to move into an old machine shop or, or something like that, that we really didn't want to do. And then the other option was basically, you know, hey, if you start a restaurant and you have your brewery, um, you can move into all sorts of places. So in in Phoenix in particular, you'll see a lot of breweries that are um, brew pubs. So they so they have a full service restaurant and they have a brewery. Um, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to stay a, a pure microbrewery and just make beer, have our own tap room, package beer, that sort of thing. So it was really hard. So um you know, I, I basically scoured um, the city records and, and found an old interpretation from a zoning um, decision that said bakeries and breweries are the same thing. So I started looking at bakery properties, and there was actually one on the way home from work that used to ho- um, house a, a Simply Bread, which used to be a big bakery in the Phoenix area. So I saw a four-lease sign. I, I called them up, and I guess the rest is history. So we moved into a couple of their buildings that they had sort of forgotten about um and really transformed it that's so cool man when you uh, how you found that sort of loophole 
how i mean i imagine that the law books on real estate are gigantic like are are you able to do like a google search on those books and you just typed in the word brewery or like how, how did that work yeah i i we spent a lot of time at the city so we would go downtown and between bill and i uh, i mean our our wise we we spent weeks down um at the city hall talking to various zoners developers um you know lawyers whoever right anybody at the city that would talk to us and phoenix is is again phoenix is great because um they're really entrepreneurial minded and they they really want to encourage small businesses to set up shop and grow so any question you have they'll they'll honestly try to help you out and they'll give you their private cell phone number or their their direct line and um you know say call us anytime we'll we'll help you out and i think it was through um, that process that we met a zoning person that, you know, um, told us kind of where to look for some interpretations. And I think I was searching for breweries and all different stuff and, and that kind of popped up. So, so, uh, it definitely paid off to, you know, befriend the, uh, the city of Phoenix, uh, folks down there. Yeah, for Hall. sure. Man, that's just so awesome. So how, when, when you very first opened, how did you decide how much equipment to buy and then once you have all this equipment and you decide you're about to open um how do you decide how much beer to make in said equipment that you bought like i imagine you're not running it at full capacity right away because you don't know how many people are going to be coming in yeah um that that was part of talking to the brewers up in portland they you know were pretty insistent that you didn't want to go any smaller than a 10 barrel because um, if you do go smaller than a 10 barrel, you're going to r- basically run into an issue where you're going to have to expand um, pretty quickly, um, which was true, right? If we were, if we got a smaller system where we are today, we would have had to basically buy a whole new system. Um, and then the other piece of it was, was cost. So um, in the brewing world, there's a ton of places making brewing equipment now at, you know, pretty good quality. Um, or I guess rewind three years ago, um, it was a little bit different. Um, there weren't as many places making really great equipment and the ones from the U S were super expensive, but really high quality. So we decided to go, you know, basically get a bigger system that was cheaper, which means the quality was lower from China, or you can get a smaller system. That's really great quality from the U S. So, so we went with the extra capacity. Um, it was a, a very, very difficult conversation um, and decision that we had to have because, you know, we wanted to buy American made stuff. Um, but really when it came down to, you know, the business level, it just wasn't feasible. And then again, from my business partner's background, being very, um, scientific and engineering mindset, he was like, you know, steel, steel, um, it comes in as long as the welds are good, whatever, it'll work. Um, that was mostly true. Uh, A lot of the components and stuff that we got, um, were pretty shitty that we had to replace quickly, which was fine. Um, but yeah, we, we basically went for the bigger system just so we could grow into it um, and not hamper the business um, versus, you know, getting a, a really, you know, Rolls Royce smaller system. Yeah. So I would love to talk more about the whole partners thing. So you've mentioned both your partners at this point. Um, you have kind of the analytical engineer numbers business minded partner you also have the uh the wunderkind 
uh, brewer who, you know, knows how to do everything on the brewing side. How are you guys making decisions? It's like it's so great to have everyone that has their own background and is able to help give input. But then coming to decisions on things like what is the next beer that we're going to make or um, certainly like what sort of stuff you're buying. Um, Like what what is your guys decision process like? And then, um, yeah, if we could carry that into the beer making and, and how you guys are always deciding sort of what what beers to come up with next and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. So we, um, you know, we, day one, we basically divided and conquered. So we, we had our own sort of areas of expertise and we did a pretty good job of not stepping over into the other person's area. So, um, I know that gets challenging because I'm kind of a sales and marketing guy. Everybody has ideas about marketing, branding and what the brand should look like and, um, all that stuff. Right. So that part's more collaborative, but then, you know, when it gets to finance and everything, Bill kind of handled that. And on the brewing side, I know it's probably tough for Preston, too, because we all have opinions on what we should make and what kind of beers and what flavor profiles we should go after and all that stuff. And then he sort of, you know, creates a recipe, tests it out, and then goes and brews a production batch. Um, but for sure, I, I think without the team dynamics that we set up kind of day one, um, I don't I don't think we would be where we are today. Um, just because, you know, you can't do everything. Um, again, that decision I made early on where I didn't want to get involved in the brewing side and just focus on the business side, I think was important because I don't, I don't think I would be mentally stable if I, if I try to do everything. Um, there's just not enough hours in the day or enough bandwidth. Um, but I guess when it fast forward to, you know, how do we get to the, the brewing decision and the beers to make and, and that sort of thing, it's, um, it's kind of trial and error. So we, we make beers that we like to drink, obviously. So um, whether that's, you know, lager stouts, IPAs, that sort of thing, but we've also, you know, kept a pulse on the market and followed, you know, key trends and that sort of thing. So um, some of our really popular beers lately have been, you know, sort of part of this haze craze of the new England IPAs that are, that are more hazy in nature. You just use a different uh, yeast strain that doesn't clear up the beer as much. So you get this, really thick bodied, um, hazy IPA that, um, is, you know, super juicy and has all these great flavors to it. Uh, that was something that, uh, you know, I think was, we were hesitant at first to, to get on and go that route. Um, I think Preston at the end of the day is, is, um, kind of old school and traditional in the sense of, um, you know, Hey, let's make West coast IPAs that, you know, are clear. That's are you know, bitter, that smell great, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, he's always down for, for trying something new. So we kind of, you know, shifted and started making more of those beers. And um, that increased, uh, I guess, demand um, from our customers. And those that are out selling our other beers, like three or four to one. So we make more of those, right? So it's sort of kind of following and growing with the market and what you know, our customers are telling us that they want us to make. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's got to be really weird trying to decide between i think this is really good versus and or for someone like preston like uh i artistically or brewer wise or whatever know that this is like an amazing beer or something versus this is what sells really well right now and we should be making this thing that sells really well 
do you try to yeah. split the beers on your menu between like those two things or, or what do you lean more heavily yeah, towards? Yeah, we do. I guess? So we, um, I think this is true, you know, when you go talk to other brewers in other states, it's still the same thing that I think we, we end up getting like palate fatigue or something like probably a lot of chefs at restaurants do where you can't always be drinking a super heavy IPA or a double IPA or an imperial stout or something like that. So a lot of times we'll gravitate towards light stuff like lagers or Kolsch's or whatever. And those are our personal favorites. And if it was up to us, we would just make those all day and, and be a lagering facility. Um, so we do still do that stuff, but at the same time, we, we acknowledge that, uh, you know, to be a good brewery, we need to make a range of styles and always keep pushing the limits and, and experimenting and, and doing all those good things, right, that will set you apart as a brewery. Um, innovation is, is definitely key. So um, we we do probably half of our menu is, or half of our tap list is more experimental stuff like um, salted gozas or um, the hazy IPAs, or we do other kettle soured beers or imperial stouts or you name it, right? Those, those kind of weird funky things. And then the second half of the tap list will be the traditional, you know, porters, um, Kolsch's, lagers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about the equipment that you need and more specifically the cost of the equipment when you were like trying to get started you you said you were going between the chinese equipment versus the u.s equipment um even going the chinese route how much money were you looking at to to make this sort of dream come alive yeah so we joked that it was about a the cost of a ferrari so it was um like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars basically to get a full 10 barrel system with four 60 barrel fermenters two 10 barrel fermenters a 20 barrel bright tank the mill, a grain silo, uh, a keg washer, all that stuff was, you know, around one hundred twenty thousand um, dollars, which is which is a lot. But you know, from a bank perspective, they see that as capital equipment, so you know, it keeps it it keeps its value. And when we're actually looking for systems, um, we wanted to get a used system to save a little bit of money and maybe get a bigger system than we can normally afford with something brand new. But um, the market's so crazy right now that even for a used system, you're paying like new prices. So we were looking at oh, wow. a ten, a ten or twenty year old system in Wisconsin. Um, the day it went on the market, we called the guy and said, "Hey, we want it." And I think it was like eighty, ninety thousand dollars or something for a similar setup. Um, and we we're like, you know, hey, we'll fly up there tomorrow, check it out, whatever. He's like, okay, sounds good. Give me a call once you book your flights. Booked our flights, gave him a call. He goes, sorry, guys, somebody just wired me $90,000 in cash and bought the system. <laughs> so, Whoa. I mean, it, it's crazy. It's like worse than the real estate market. Um, just how many breweries are opening right now um, and the competition in the market. Um, it, it's hard to find used equipment like that. So we went with, you know, new. And again, we we bought it um, from from Asia just because, you know, again, we could get more for our money at the time. Now, that stuff is really big. How does that arrive and do you have to put it together like what how's that all go down yeah i mean it arrives in some big huge shipping containers after it takes um you know a couple months to make it across the ocean um 
And then, yeah, it shows up and we basically got to pull it out with a forklift. I think we had to borrow a forklift from somebody um, because we didn't have any money to buy our own. Um, And then, yeah, it's a big like jigsaw puzzle that you have to start piecing together, piecing together everything. And of course, when you get it, uh, like anything, stuff doesn't fit or, um, you know, you have to kind of make some adjustments on the fly. Yeah, for sure. What are the variable costs of making beer? So like how much are the um, ingredients costing? Uh, yeah, I guess let's just talk about ingredients, not necessarily salaries and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah, I mean, the costs can vary dramatically, right? So um, the grain itself is a big cost. And, you know, for grain, one of the cool things that I find super fun is that, you know, there's like hundreds of grain varieties. So you can buy um, like two row grain from the U S you can buy it from Canada. You can buy it from Germany. You can buy it from the UK, basically anywhere in the world that grows grain. They'll have, um, a portfolio of grains that you can choose from that all bring different flavors and different characteristics to your beer. Um, so it's really like a kid in a candy store. I mean, it's, it's endless possibilities. And what's been even cooler is that there's a lot of, um, small boutique grain houses that have, or malsters that they call them that have popped up in the U S that basically, you know, think of like a family farm in, um, you know, North Dakota or something that's growing barley. Um, they have started to harvest it and malt it themselves. So they, they cook it, um, to make it ready to brew beer with. Um, and you can buy direct from these tiny little farmers, these little boutique malsters, um, all over the country. And obviously that price is a little more expensive than the big guys, but you might get some more, you know, kind of unique flavors out of it or something. And there's even local grain in, in Arizona that we use too, that is more expensive, but use it, uh, sparingly, I guess. Um, so yeah, the grain for our beer, a 10 barrel batch, it's usually around a thousand dollars worth of grain and it comes in a big pallet. Um, um, so that cost, um, does range for bigger beers you need kind of double the grain um because that that translates into um alcohol content at the at the end of the beer um and then i guess the biggest thing are the hops um the hop market has also been super crazy um typically the way it works is you have to sign up for a contract um, or you buy hops on the spot market they call it so from a contract perspective you're talking anywhere from one, two, three, four years out that you sign up and you say, Hey, four years from now, I'm going to buy $30,000 worth of Amarillo hops. And you better hope that, you know, four years from now, one, you're still in business and two, um, you can afford to pay for all those hops. So what ends up happening, you see a lot of, um, brewers that have over committed to hop contracts and they try to sell them on the spot market. So a lot of times you can get hops for, you know, pennies on the dollar almost on the spot market for some of the, the mainstream hops. What? Why would you uh, ever do the long-term contract then? Well, typically it's, um, you know, again, three, four years ago, you weren't sure um, which hops were going to be in season or what their commitment was going to be. So if you saw a cool hop that you wanted like Amarillo, um, you would want to reserve that out you know, multiple years just to make sure that you had it for some of your flagship beers. Um, the challenge is that the, the market will respond, right? So the hop farmers will grow more of that hop because it's popular. And then all of a sudden you're sitting on a bunch of hops that you can easily get on the spot market. 
Um, so we're kind of living that right now, right? So we're actually going away from contracts and we're buying most of our stuff stuff on the spot market um, just because basically everything's available now. There's such a big supply of hops um, that you don't really need to sign up for a contract unless it's for a very um, hard to get hop. For those, you know, hands down, you want to get a contract and you kind of have to. So we're really excited because we just got a very special hop that came um, through a contract. We signed up for it three years ago when we were doing our business plan. We kind of got wind of the hop market and the understanding that, you know, if we wanted to get anything really special, we had to reserve it years out. Um, so the hop in particular that I'm talking about is, is called Galaxy Hops. So again, three years ago, we signed a contract for, I don't I don't even know what the contract was, but it's like thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of Galaxy hops a year. Um, what sort of down ago, payment and, do you have to put down on that? Well, that's the thing; you don't have to. So you you sort of are committing to it, um, and then when it comes due, you got to pay for it. So um, there's nothing up front, but you got to prove that you've got your brewery license and and all that stuff. Um, so we, we signed up for it. Um, and it kind of just came available this year. And the way hops work, it's like wine or any other crop, right? They harvest it once a year. Um, Galaxy is from um, New Zealand, so it, it's opposite harvest time. So they harvest it um, kind of earlier in the year than, than we do here in the U.S. Um, so anyways, we were just able to get those. And I think they were worth all the headache and the frustration of waiting for them because you know, we're, we've been tasting the beer that we just put them in and it's, you know, beats all of our wildest expectations. So that hop in particular on the spot mark on the spot market, you'll see it for like 30, $40 a pound, which is crazy. Um, because you can get a really nice cascade hop, which is a very popular U S hop for like $5 a pound. So you can imagine how much that changes the cost of an IPA, for example, if you use Galaxy Hops versus Cascade Hops. Um, so, you know, the nice part is since most of our business is through the tap room, we can, you know, adjust accordingly, maybe add uh, 50 cents to a, the cost of a pint and make that up. But if we were to sell, actually, I don't even think we would be able to sell a keg of it wholesale because, you know, nobody would buy it for the price we would have to charge for it. Right. Would that 50 cents cover it, you think? Yeah, because, I mean, if you're talking about 50 cents a pint for a keg, you're talking about an extra $60 a keg um, for a batch. That would be an extra $1,200 for the batch. Um, so, yeah, that would, that would kind of cover the cost of the more expensive hop. Wow. Crazy. That's all you need. That's great. What? Yeah. So, then what about when we go to... Uh, to breweries or it usually happens more at bars sometimes and it's like you know one beer is uh you know it's like a lot of the uh cheap shitty mass-produced american beers uh like budweiser cores and stuff maybe they have like four or five bucks a pint most of the micro brews they'll have for like seven or eight and then they'll have certain beers that are you know uh 13 14 dollars for like eight to ten ounces of it or something like what's going on with a beer like that yeah, I mean, really, it, it just comes down to economies of scale, really. Um, you know, Budweiser is pumping out 30,000 barrel batches of Budweiser or whatever it is. Um, something crazy, right? They're, they're making these gigantic batches where, um, you know, as part of their 
brewing process. They don't exactly uh, use traditional brewing methods either, so they can save a lot of money on cutting some corners when they they make their big beer. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's for sure a, a scale thing. So from our perspective, if we were to make the same type of beer, like a, a Pilsner or a Lager or something similar to a Budweiser, it's going to cost us, you know, quadruple if not more um, per batch than it does Budweiser. It probably costs us 10 times more than it costs them to make the same amount of beer just because in a true lagering process, um, you know, we we brew the beer. The actual cost of the beer is cheap, the malt and the, and the hops that go into it. But on the cold side, it takes up a tank. One of your fermenters, you know, we only have six fermenters. It takes up a fermenter for anywhere from six to eight weeks, which in the same amount of time we could brew, you know, three lager or three ales, um, you know, in that same tank. So for us, it's, it's a time thing. But, you know, when you're talking about Imperial Stout, that's, you know, 8% or 10% and it costs way more money. That goes into you know basically the amount of malt that you use and the the yield um, that you get from the beer. So that lager example I talked about, you pretty much get the full ten barrels out of it. Um, you know, you put ten barrels worth of stuff in, you get ten barrels worth of stuff out. For an imperial stout, you basically put in as much grain as will fill the tank, um, and then at the end of it, you you boil it down, you get all those rich sugars out of it, and you end up with like maybe three or four barrels worth of beer at the end of the process. So oh, you're wow. losing over 50% of your, uh, of your product just through the brewing process, because you only want to take the first runnings from, from the wort, which is, you know, kind of the, the new beer to keep it nice and thick and um, kind of heavy. So, yeah, so you basically, that, that's kind of a key part of the cost driver is that, you know, it costs double the amount. Um, and you get half the product um, that you would from a regular beer. Yeah, so that's why when you're at the bar, it's double the cost and half the beer. Yeah, and then if you were to if you were to put it into a barrel, you're you know extending your cost even more, right? Because then you're you're sitting it in a barrel in a room for anywhere up to a year or two years, um, and so you got to think of those carrying costs. And at the end of it, sometimes that beer doesn't turn out. So you have to dump beer that increases your costs and, and you know, all these other variables. Yeah, for sure. Um, how much inventory do you keep on hand at one time? And, and how are you guys forecasting how much to make continuously? Like, have you ever like run out of beer and been like, Oh crap, we have no beer to serve. Or like we, that, that one beer that was really popular, like we didn't know it was going to be so popular. It ran out. Now it's going to be another month before it's back on the shelf. Yeah, we've uh, we've tried to get a lot better with planning. Um, we I think we got to a point um, kind of first year we were open that we got down to like three beers on tap at the at the tap room, which was really scary because um, our accounts had taken more beer than we thought, and we had oversold to accounts, so we didn't really have any for the tap room. So the way we combat that now is that we um, basically do limits on the amount we distribute. So um, you know, we have a couple of key accounts that always order our IPA, for example. So we'll uh, make sure that we make enough and have enough in stock for them to pull from um, before we brew the next batch of it. 
Um, and then we also look at, you know, sales and projections from the tap room of, you know, how much on average we go through of, of each beer. And we make sure that we have that much on hand to fulfill the, the tap room needs. And then, you know, at times, if a beer is sitting for whatever reason that's not selling through to accounts, we'll, um, you know, drop the price on it to, to sell it or, um, you know, we'll, we'll not brew it for a long time, right, just to, to get through the, the rest of the batch that we have. But fortunately for us, we've, we've tried to transition to a sort of uh, real-time or on-demand process where, you, you know, we're, um, we're not keeping a lot of inventory on hand, that we sell it as soon as we make it sort of thing. So we're constantly, you know, kind of moving through beer and putting new beers on. Yeah, which has got to help your reputation so much because on the beer, it tastes better. Yeah, for sure. Freshness is is big. And then um, we've also started packaging. So, you know, whether that's bottling or canning. So for an IPA, we can can the entire batch and sell it in a day, um, which, you know, would normally take us a month to get through that whole batch, right? So it's a good and a bad thing, right? We want to have a lot of variety on at the tap room, but at the same time, we want to do packaging um, just because, you know, the market demands it. Again, do you need any specific different sort of license to do sales like that or that's just the day you decided you wanted to do it you could just immediately start doing it yeah again it was it was up to our zoning so since we were um considered a, a microbrewery we were able to do anything a, a microbrewery uh, is able to do like if you were in a, a c2 zoning or something like that or um you would be sort of handcuffed on what um packaging you could do um, because they don't they don't allow I don't know, it, there's a lot of complicated rules with it, but basically, long story short, you're you're not allowed to have a production line or a bottling line or something like that at a, a brew pub. But at a um, commercial brewery, we can do it to our heart's content, right? So um, we we do mobile canners or we do our own bottling run, and it falls under our our license. Yeah, for sure. So you guys have, I mean, you guys make some great beer, by the way. So I should say that. And so you guys have been getting some awards, getting some press, stuff like that. Uh, first of all, are you driving a lot of that in terms of like trying to get it to writers, trying to get it to places that hand out awards and, and things like that? Or is that it's like they're just finding it? And then when you get an award, does that drive more people to start looking for that beer and asking about it? And then the third part yeah. of this, sorry, I don't mean to give you a three-tier question, but it all kind of no, ties together is, do as soon as you, now, like, as soon as you get an award, do you immediately, before that even takes place, start brewing more of that beer because you know you're going to have a lot more people asking for it? Yeah, totally. So, um, I guess to your first question, um, no, in a sense, we don't intentionally, like, I don't uh, wine and dine beer bloggers or something like that, but... Um, I, I am a strong believer in, in grassroots marketing. So, um, you know, the way I went about that is, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big beer trader. So um, basically sending beers to friends in other states and they'll send me some of their beers um, that they have locally that you can't get anywhere else. So, you know, with those relationships that I built through trading, I would send them, you know, Renhouse beer and, sort of create this buzz about the brand um, in other states. So you sort of, um, 
you know, when anybody's traveling to the East Coast or something and they have a Rinhouse shirt, somebody will say, hey, Rinhouse, I've had Rinhouse beer, Rinhouse, it's great, or whatever. Um, same thing with Portland, right? I would bring up beers to Portland and share them with brewery owners up there. Um, so kind of building our name in the industry. And then I think that sort of, um, you know, helped um, kind of bring attention locally that when locals would travel out of state and they would hear about, you know, people would ask about Rinhouse, they were like, oh, Rinhouse must be pretty cool if these people in, in Oregon or New York or wherever know about them. Um, and I think that sort of grassroots thing really helped us out. And then, you know, of course, the locals themselves, right, coming into the tap room, having a good experience, liking our beer, and doing the same thing I did many times over, right? They would have our beer, they really liked it, so they would send it to their friends, um, you know, in other states or whatever. So so that kind of grassroots marketing has really helped. Um, and I think from a, an award perspective, um, you know, I think we're doing something unique in Phoenix. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great breweries in Phoenix, like, don't get me wrong, but I don't think any of them have exactly what we have that we're a standalone house and production facility in an old part of town. Um, so when people come, it really, I think, makes an impression on them. So they, you know, like to talk about it and write about it. And I think the beer sort of speaks for itself, too. So we've been fortunate that, you know, a lot of the reviewers and critics and stuff have, have felt the same way that they, you know, enjoy our beer and, and want to tell people about it. Um, so when you get an I award think, now, do you have to yeah. make a lot? Like, do you find that people start asking for it? Yeah, for sure. So um, we entered, um, so Arizona has um, kind of one big brewer competition and it's hosted by the Arizona Society of Home Brewers. Um, and it's part of the Strong Beer Fest. So we entered our double IPA into that fest in a very strong category with a lot of great new IPA brewers in the state. Um, and we won gold, and we actually won best in show for for that beer. So that beer won double gold. Um, the funny thing was that was a very last of the batch, and we didn't have any more of it. So you get all this attention, and people <laughs> are asking for it. And then you don't have any of it. So um, we actually haven't rebrewed that beer, but I get people asking for it all the time um, because it hasn't kind of gotten back into our schedule. But um, it is probably something we'll we'll brew again um, just because, you know, people are asking for it because, yeah, it, it, it was written up. Um, and we have that also with Joe Max, our coffee stout. It's kind of our flagship beer. Um, it won best beer in Arizona or something um, from Arizona Republic last year. Um, so a lot of accounts ask for it by name, which, which is great. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, all right, let's try to go through some more kind of like fun questions in uh, in a little bit more rapid fire format. Do you ever really love a beer and it doesn't do well and then it makes you sad? Or do you ever like not really like a beer and it does really well? Yeah. Um, you know, again, we, we love the lagers like senior Cayo is our Mexican lager that we are obsessed with at the brewery. I mean, it's like all we drink. Um, but the reception has been lukewarm at best, I guess, in the market, just because again, people will drink it and they're like, Oh, it's just another lager, um, which really pisses us off. Um, but, uh, yeah, that one's kind of sad, right? Because, uh, we love it, but we don't make it that often because, you know, people just, um, you know, our customers just think it's, you know, just another lager kind of thing. Um, but then, um, so that was, that's one that, you know, we like more than, I guess, the market. Um, one that 
I guess the other side of it, um, I don't know. We, we make a lot of like, you know, really big Imperial stouts or double IPAs or whatever um, that we don't personally drink a lot of. So, or, you know, I can only have like a sip of it. Um, so that, that's kind of the other side of it where people are, you know, demanding those types of beers, but uh, we don't typically drink a lot of them. It's so funny with beer. I was just trying to think as you were saying that. I was trying to think in my head of like other product categories that have a similar thing. And there's really not many where with whatever the, uh, I, I guess, like en vogue beer of the time is, like right now, like IPAs and things like that. Like if you're going to leave your house and go to a tap room or go to a bar or something and you're going to spend your hard-earned money like and and, mm-hmm. and buy beer at like seven, eight, nine dollars per pint, then it's like, well, then I should be, uh, I better be getting a ton of flavor out of it. You know, I better, yeah. I better be getting an IPA or something, which is like a super flavorful, flavorful beer. It then yeah. kind of makes sense that with something like the Senior Gallo, that although it could be really good, it's like, well, that's just not the same flavor experience. So yeah. why am I paying my money for? Like, I just like, you know. I just put my nice jeans on. I put my nice shirt on. I left my house. I, yeah. uh, you know, and it's like, I did all that to drink a Mexican beer, you know, like it yeah, just no, like, it strikes point. people as weird, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. And I hear a lot too, that people, um, that a lot of customers that come in, um, they want beers with higher alcohol because they want, um, I guess more bang for their buck, right? They, they want to, um, you know, feel, feel nice quicker um uh, from a stronger beer that's so um, funny and it's so silly yeah. man by the way <laughs> but sorry continue. I, yeah i don't necessarily agree with that but uh, i'm more of a sessionable person where you know i'd rather have uh five or more uh loggers um just hanging out with friends or whatever versus one you know imperial stout that i you know get blacked out on or something yeah totally man could not agree with you more i'm so happy about it that session IPAs became such a popular thing. And then now everyone yeah, makes those. Great. It's like it, uh, yeah, it's just so nice to have a beer that, that has all the flavor of an, of an IPA, but that you can just keep drinking. It's wonderful. And I also yeah. just like the flavor in general better than most IPAs, just having like a slightly like lighter edge to it. Yeah. Not as much malt or sweetness. Yeah. yeah, for sure, man. Tell me about your beer palette, because I've always, thought that i don't necessarily have like the most sensitive palate uh both of my parents are really into wine and my sister's really into wine and i for that matter i i'm really into wine but i when i hear them say certain things about wine i'm like i don't i just know that i like this one you know like i don't know and you know i can't really like pick out flavors or or whatever maybe it's just that i'm not drinking as much as them you know it's like the other thing that i think sometimes I wonder what your experience has been now opening a brewery and getting to taste beers in so many different stages through their creation and knowing that a different hop went into this one as opposed to the last time you guys made this beer and then trying to either taste them back to back or imagine how it changed. Are you now actually able to discern the differences between these things more than you were before you started the brewery? Yeah, you know, I think think a a good palate is well, I, I think people, some people are naturally gifted with a good palate and then some people, you know, have to develop a palate. Um, so, you know, trying, for me, it was, you know, helping develop a new palate of trying a lot of different flavors, um, you know, experimenting with, with a lot of different foods, um, that sort of thing to build like this, 
flavor sort of library in your head of when you taste something, you're like, oh, it tastes like that. Um, like, so a lot of weird fruits or something, you'll, you'll taste a hops and you're uh, a certain hop and you'll be like, oh, that tastes like lychee or it tastes like passion fruit or, or whatever else. Right. But you'd only know it tastes like that if you have a really good palate library in your head to pull from. Um, so for me, um, I've always been into, you know, trying new things and experimenting with new food. So, um, you know, I, I think I can kind of uh, equate um, certain flavors to, to certain foods pretty well, um, whether it's like Skittles or Fruit Loops or whatever, whatever else um, that works sometimes too. But, um, you know, I, I think you do, one of the cool parts about brewing, and I think we sort of forget about it in the industry is, you know, we drink beer all the time that's either wort, which is a new beer, there's like no alcohol in it, whatever, or out of the fermenter or out of the barrel or all these different stages of the beer, but we can sort of get an idea, um, actually a really good idea sometimes of how the beer is going to finish. So when you actually, you know, when it's finally carbonated and it's, um, you know, finished fermenting and it's, it's ready to go, um, that will taste like we thought it was going to taste like through the process. Right. Um, and that's something that is definitely learned because, you know, day one, when we're tasting a beer, we'd be like, Oh, that, that doesn't taste right or that tastes amazing. And then when it finally finishes three or four weeks later, it's a totally different beer. And we're like, Whoa, that's crazy how much it changed. But, um, kind of, as you, as you kind of do that hundreds and hundreds of times, um, you get a better idea in your head of how something's going to end up. And it's kind of really one of the cool processes to do. Yeah. And that process alone, I guess, just starts to refine your palate a little more or make it more sensitive to different flavors and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So this question is going to sound maybe like a joke, but I actually mean it very seriously, which is how are you not an alcoholic? Like, how do you keep yourself from being an alcoholic when you have a brewery? Because A, you have quote unquote free beer. It's like, you know, I know you're eating into your inventory, but you have it around. You have around really high quality beer all the time for free, basically. And then you're on premises a lot where everyone else is just drinking. And then... In addition to all that, you have to actually you have to taste a lot of the things. So, like, how do you not just yeah. like have a drinking problem? Yeah, you know, I think uh, <laughs> I think you know it, it's a funny question, but a serious question. I think a lot of people in the industry struggle with it um, because it is omnipresent; it's everywhere all the time. Um, but uh, you know, we get a lot of gifted beer too from other breweries. That's like amazing. Um, so, like, my fridge is full of like beer that I don't really touch, but, um, you know, there are many, many days that I, you know, have a beer at eight in the morning because I'm at the brewery and we're sampling beers and, and whatever. Right. Um, it's sort of like a normal thing. That's probably not socially acceptable unless you're tailgating or something at a, at a football <laughs> game. You're yeah. not supposed to be drinking at eight in the morning. Um, but I guess, you know, when you're around it so much, um, you, I don't know. It's more like you drink it socially. It's not, uh, I don't know. It's hard to describe. It's, I think it's probably different for every person. And the big thing I think for me is that, you know, the calories kind of catch up to you. So when you're drinking beer all the time, um, it's pretty calorie dense. So, um, you kind of gotta, gotta watch that. But, uh, for me, yeah, anymore, I think I, um, will just have a few sips of beers when we're tasting them in the morning or whatever. It's not like I'm pounding an imperial stout at eight in the morning. Um, and I'm, you know, 
drunk all day. It's more like I'm taking a sip or a couple of sips to get a flavor profile, get an idea and talk about the beer, that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess you can see it as a perk of the industry, but it's also kind of a, a thing you gotta you gotta keep in mind, right? You don't want to um, end up drinking all the time. Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> Just, man. Uh, yeah, from a personal perspective, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So we only have a couple minutes left. So there's like a lot of other questions that I would love to ask you, but I won't. Um, and so something that I want to say is because the the next question that I want to ask as we wind down is is kind of like the best thing to come out of owning a brewery from speaking to you yesterday and getting to talk about everything especially since you have a a full-time job still that like there are a lot of like trials and tribulations and difficult times that come with with opening your own brewery so just so everyone knows that like that's something that we'll kind of skip over here because I don't want to like take this negative I'd rather end on a nice positive note but it's like you know, again, like I think a lot of people desire to open something like a brewery, but it's not just like all sunshine and roses, correct? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> all right, so it's definitely, it's definitely not. yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But so then, what is <laughs> what is the sunshine and roses? Like, if you could pick out like the best thing over the past couple of years of owning a brewery, like, um, what what has really been nice? Honestly, it's a couple of things. One, it's getting to know your city on an intimate level. Um, like I have gotten to know so many awesome people that walk through our, our taproom doors and become regulars and friends, um, like true friends of, of us and, and our brewery staff and that sort of thing. So that part um, is definitely the best. The second one, same same kind of vein of getting to know your city super intimately is getting to know um, other brewery owners or bar owners or restaurant owners or whatever. So really kind of growing your network of industry people that um, you never get to see as, as a regular, you know, um, average, average person in the market. Um, I've gotten to know so many great restaurant owners and bar owners and, and that sort of thing who are very inspiring people, right. That are kind of going through the same process just in a different industry. Um, and same thing with the city, right? Meeting people from the city of Phoenix that actually care about, you know, making the city a, a good place and helping businesses grow. Um, without a doubt, it, it's kind of the people aspect. Um, and that's kind of why why we do it at the end of the day. Do you feel like in that regard, it's kind of like changed just your overall life experience of living in the city of Phoenix? For sure. I mean, I think I, you know, you know, personally, I was pretty cynical about the government in general and um, whether it's state, local or, or national, whatever. Um, and, you know, I was more entrepreneurial mindset where it's like, we got to do our own thing and look out for ourselves and all this stuff. Um, like screw the government sort of thing. But um, when you get to know some of these people, it's, it's, um, it's really comforting to know that there's actually people that care about um, the city and the well-being of, of the people that live in it. So so yeah, that's definitely been a, a great part of it. Love it, man. That's so great. All right, Drew, let's go ahead and finish this thing up with some advice for anyone that would either like to open their own brewery or if they wanted to become a brewer at an already established brewery, what sort of advice would you give? Yeah, I think, you know, again, just from my own personal experience, I think, you know, whoever is looking to do this, you need to think long and hard about your role in the company. Um, I know everybody wants to get into it and be the brewer, but you got to kind of be honest with yourself and think, is that where I would best suit the business? Um, you know, are my skills going to be best 
suited for this business by being a brewer? Or can I find an awesome brewer to do that stuff? And I should be the face of the company and be the one that's, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies and doing the, the marketing and that sort of thing or, or wherever your interest and expertise lies. I think that's a big thing that a lot of people get confused about because it is such a romantic idea to open a brewery and, and be the brewer and, and make your own beer. Um, so that's number one for sure. Number two, along the same thing, um, have a good team. So find people that round you out, um, that round out your skill set. So, you know, like I'm a sales and marketing guy, I'm not kidding myself by thinking I know how to do finances or accounting. Um, so I, I need somebody to be able to do that. Same thing with operations or brewing or whatever. So, you know, get a good team and then make those people, you know, when you do find good people, make them part of the company. So even you'd be amazed with what little percentage of a business you have to give somebody to make them invested in it. So, you know, share the ownership, share the wealth, get people involved and get them to stay for the long haul. Uh, once you have a good team, don't let it go. Yeah, man. Great advice. Love all that. Um, Drew, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much. Uh, if anyone is ever traveling through Phoenix, you should definitely check out Ren House. It is super awesome. Really quaint, little cool um, tap room in this really old sort of uh, building house thing. And uh, it, are, is there any way for people to know if your beer is local to them? Or is that just like, ask for it, find out? Yeah, I mean, check us out on Instagram, Facebook. That's kind of we talk about where our beers are, where which accounts are carrying it. But always helps to ask uh, your local uh, establishment if they carry Ren House. Cool, man, dig it. Awesome, Drew. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys